Okay, I've got a puzzle for you this morning. It's a kind of a brain teaser sort of thing. It's, you've got three people, three business guys, and they all are on a trip together and they're going to get a hotel room to share. And so they're going to split the cost of the hotel room, which is $30. So they pay 30 bucks to the manager, checks them in, and they go to the room and suddenly the manager remembers that there's a special on the room and it's only 25 bucks. And so he gives $5 to the bellboy to take to the room to give back to the guys. And on the way to the room, the bellboy thinks, well, how are three guys going to split $5? That's going to be a, a real pain for them. So in order to save them all that trouble, he pockets two bucks and takes $3 to the room. And so each man gives back one, gets back $1. So they, in the beginning, they each paid $10 for the room. And so the bellhop gave them each a dollar back, and so they each paid $9, totaling $27 for the room. The bellboy has $2. So the men paid 27 the bellboy has 2 That's 29 27 plus 2 is 29 Where's the extra dollar? You make you think a little bit, huh? <laughs> Have you ever heard that riddle before? Okay, good. That's, uh, how many would like to know the answer? Okay, a few. How many would like would rather figure it out for yourself? Okay, there's some of you people. There's some you're along my kind of my kind of person. I like to figure things out for myself. I I might tell the answer in a little bit, but uh, you'll have to listen for a while first. <laughs> I I think a good puzzle is uh well, I like figuring out problems. Puzzles are good, you know, the word puzzles and brain teasers and things. But even better. I like real life problems that I can figure out for myself and, and, and unsolve. You know, if, if you've ever fixed a car that doesn't start, there's a feeling of accomplishment when you tackle an engine or, or even an electrical problem in a car. When you can um, build a computer network, you feel like you've done something that a lot of people can't, they have no idea what to do. If, if you can, I used to love to take things apart, electronic stuff, like if a radio stopped working. Or even if a radio was still working, I would take things apart when I was a kid and, and kind of try to figure out how they worked and what made them tick and then put them back together and, and see if I could fix things. So I've always enjoyed figuring out solutions to, to real-life puzzles because it's kind of rewarding when you, when you have a problem and you can figure out the solution and come up with a, a fix for that problem, you feel accomplished. You feel like I did something neat. Like you feel proud of yourself for doing something that that was broken or wasn't that you didn't think was possible to do before. And uh, the greatest challenge for understanding, the greatest puzzle, if you could call it a puzzle, to figure out is understanding the mind of God. That's a pretty big mystery, isn't it? There's a lot there that we don't understand. But in spite of the fact there's a, that, that we don't really know the full mind of God, God still wants us to understand Him. He challenges us to know Him and to understand Him. In Jeremiah 9.23, this is one of my favorite verses. It's a couple of verses. 9.23 and 24. It says, uh, The Lord says, Wise people should not boast that they are wise. Powerful people should not boast that they are powerful. Rich people should not boast that they are rich. If people want to boast... They should boast about this. They should boast that they understand and know me. 
They should boast that they know and understand that I, the Lord, act out of faithfulness, fairness, and justice in the earth, and that I desire people to do these things. So I think it's kind of interesting that God not only makes it clear that He wants us to know Him, He wants us to understand Him, but that knowing God is something that we can show off. That if you truly know the Lord, if you truly understand who God is and what He wants for the world, you can be proud of that. And you can tell the world, hey, I know God. Let me tell you about Him. Let me explain to you what who God is and what He wants for us. And of course, people who truly know God, you know that you can get prideful and arrogant about anything. But people who who really know God, like in a relationship, kind of knowing God, they those kind of people are probably not going to be prideful and arrogant because God Himself, in all His power and in all His glory and majesty remains humble in spite of that. I mean, God is the supreme power. God is the supreme knowledge. God is. He, he knows everything there is to know. He has all the power to do whatever He wants to do. Yet, He's a humble God. And, he's, and He came to earth as a baby. He, he put on human flesh and was born in a feeding trough and was raised in a humble, poor manual labor kind of household and was never rich, was never powerful, was never uh, a ruler. I mean, He is a ruler. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but He lived out a humble life. And so God in all His majesty is still a humble God. And so people who truly know God and understand Him usually get that that's the way you should live. And so people who go out preaching Him usually go out pretty humbly. I mean, the people who, who aren't humble really don't know God. So, so you can be proud of it, not prideful, so to speak, but you can be proud that you know who God is and share Him with the world and share who He is and what He wants for us. Um, if you know and understand the Lord, then your top priority ought to be telling others about Him. If you know and understand the Lord, then the first thing that you want to do is explain who God is and what He wants to the rest of the world, to the people who don't know God. That's why God gives us the information about Himself so that we can share it with the rest of the world. That's our, our role, our, our job as disciples because He wants everyone to come to know Him. He wants everyone to be saved and, and through knowing Him and to give us all new lives because we have a relationship with God. He wants everyone to have that knowledge. So it's a challenge for us to know God and it's a challenge for us to share that knowledge with the rest of the world. People in real life relation in a real life relationship with with the Lord know that he never gives up on us. So we shouldn't give up on him. In in John 6:39 Jesus says this. He says, "Now this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should not lose one person of everyone he has given me, but raise them up all of, all of them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. For everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him to have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. And, and that's why people who really know Jesus, who really understand the Lord, are willing to give everything to serve their Lord and Savior. 
if you really know God, there's nothing in this world that's more valuable than God Himself, than the Savior, Jesus Christ, and sharing Him. You know that's the, the greatest treasure that you can share with anybody. Um, in Acts chapter 5, this is a good story. Acts 5 at verse 12, the, there are some disciples that were willing to, to give pretty much everything. And uh, yeah, I'll start at verse 12 here. Now many miraculous signs and wonders came about the people through the hands of the apostles. So they're out preaching and they're out. This is after Jesus has ascended and they've gone out to spread the good news of, of Jesus and what he's done and who he is. And, uh, and there's miracles going on. People are being healed. And they're coming to, to, to the Lord because of what the disciples are doing. And it says, by common consent, they were all meeting together in Solomon's portico. So that's in Jerusalem there where the, the believers would come together. Um, it said, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high honor. So some of the disciples were there and some of, us, of them weren't. But it said, more and more believers in the Lord were added to their number. Crowds of both men and women Thus they even carried the sick out into the streets and put them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow would fall on some of them. A crowd of people from the towns around Jerusalem also came together, bringing the sick and those troubled by unclean spirits. They were all being healed. So there's miracles going on and people have heard about this and there's crowds of people coming to gather around the Christians. Wouldn't that be interesting if that's the way church was today? if the believers all came together in church and crowds of people heard about what was going on in the church and they came to flock around to see just what was going on. That's the way it ought to be. I mean, things ought to be going so... There, there ought to be so much going on in the church and through the church that the world wants to come see and wants to be a part of it. Wants to find out you know, if they can just lay in your shadow and be healed by it. I don't know what was going on, but they, they thought there was so much going on. They thought... If Peter's shadow just crossed, maybe he'll be healed. Like the lady who had the issue of blood, and she said, if I can just touch Jesus' clothes, I'll be healed. So the world was hearing about what was going on with the Christians, and they wanted to be a part of it. And so they came, and they, and they crowded around these people who, who gathered at, the, at Solomon's porch. And I think it's pretty clear that God uses people who live out their faith. If people who truly believe in God, who know the Lord and have a relationship with Him, and they're living it out, they're stepping forward, and they're preaching the Gospel, and they're living the way He's called us to live. People who show their trust in God by stepping out into a dangerous world. And it was a dangerous world for Christians back then, just as it is in a lot of places in the world today. But people who step out in that dangerous world and they preach, and they preach the good news about Jesus, and they promote righteousness, and they say, you've got to dump your sin, and you've got to start living for Jesus because it's going to give you a whole new... It's going to give you an amazing life and a good life and a fulfilled life and people who live as ambassadors for the Lord and examples of Jesus Christ, that God blesses those people. That when you work, when you step out in faith, God gives you whatever you need to accomplish the task that He's put ahead of you. And miracles happen. And when people step out in faith, miracles happen. For people who just sit around watching TV, not so many miracles. But for people who are out there living on the edge, putting their lives on the line for Jesus Christ, miracles happen. And that's what was going on with the disciples. They were out there living on the edge, staring death in the face, and miracles were happening and the world was hearing about it. A friend of mine asked recently about losing faith. Like, how can you lose your faith? How does a person lose their faith? And 
And a lot of people equate the word faith with religion. With that, that faith is really just you go to church and you go through the, the you know, you dress up and you sing some songs and you put some money in the plate and then you go home and that's faith. And and that's that's probably not so hard to walk away from. You know, if you lose your faith and that's what your faith is, you know, that's not such a big deal. But if you understand faith as a personal relationship with your creator, that you believe in the God who made us and you believe him enough to serve him and you believe him enough to step out and preach for him and you believe him enough that you that your life depends on the existence and the love of the creator and the deep love of your savior then then giving up your faith is probably about as ludicrous as giving up your family as you know as walking away from a spouse you love or your children that you love i mean it's 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 it sounds ridiculous to say i could lose my faith i could give up on Jesus. Like, how am I, who else would I go to, Lord? That's what they said. To whom else would we turn? And, and that's probably what it sounds like for people who truly know the Lord. When, when somebody says, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not anymore. You're like, how could, you, how could you have a relationship with your Creator and know His love for you and love Him in return and live in that awesome communion and that awesome connection and see what God does to people's hearts in your own heart, and know that transformation, and then walk away from it. It sounds ridiculous. I mean, to people who aren't Christians who have never had that kind of relationship, they're like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. But for people who have lived in that, how could anybody walk away from that? It just sounds ludicrous. And so, the a lot of people walk away from relationships these days. I mean, there's a lot of broken marriages, a lot of broken families, but there are also a lot of people who weren't very committed to begin with. And it's the same way with the faith these days. There are a lot of people who come to church as consumers and they're looking for the church to feed them something. And if they don't get what they want, they walk away or they go to another church. There's a lot of people who, who grow up in the church and they never really feel the connection with God because they just, it's just, faith is just religious practice. It's just ceremony. And so walking away from that is no big deal. And, and that's why Jesus said, count the cost. Before you get involved with me, before you follow me, understand that this is, could cost you your life. That it will mean persecution and suffering. But understand also that the rewards are much greater than anything that you might have to suffer on this earth. That the eternal rewards are going to blow you away. So decide now whether you're make, willing to make a short-term loss for a long-term gain. And... As long as you are willing to do that and commit to Jesus, well, He's willing to commit to you. And and as long as you belong to, as long as your heart belongs to God, Jesus promises never to let go and never to give up and never to walk away. The world may persecute you, but the Lord will never forsake you. And the ver- next verse, verse seventeen in, in Acts chapter five says, "Now the high priest rose up." And all those with him, that is the religious party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in a public jail. But during the night, a miracle happened. An angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison and led them out and said, Go and stand in the temple courts and proclaim to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple courts at daybreak and began to teaching. So the, the religious leaders, the people with power, came and, and they were jealous because people were flocking to the Christians to find out what was going on. 
And so they arrested him. They threw him in jail. And an angel came and let him out of jail and said, go back and preach some more. And that's what they did. The next morning, they were right back in the temple and they were preaching the Word of God. And that's, and that's what faith does. That's what real faith does. You, you can't stop it with prison or persecution or fear tactics or death threats or anything because it's, it's a part of who a person is. It's a deep-seated... When you're transformed from the inside out, you, you can't separate that from a person because it is the person. It's right down to your core. In the next verse, in verse 21, it says, Now when the high priests and those who were with them arrived, they summoned the Sanhedrin. That is the whole high council of the Israelites. So the Sanhedrin is the Jewish government. Um, it's, and it was a religious government. So it was the, the high priests were in charge. And of course, above that, they had the, the secular government, which was the conquering nation of Rome, allowed certain people to be in power like Herod um, and Pontius Pilate who kind of governed the affairs of Rome. But within Jerusalem, they were still allowed to keep their own religious government. So that's the Sanhedrin. And it says, and they sent to the jail to have the apostles brought before them. So they thought the apostles were still in jail and they were going to have them put them on trial. But the officers who came for them did not find them in the prison. And so they returned and reported, We found the jail locked securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. So not only did an angel come and release them, but somehow he, he like put everybody to sleep or froze time or did some sort of miraculous event, like transported them from the prison to outside the prison. I don't know. But somehow, nobody knew that these people left the jail. The, the guards didn't know it. The, the doors were locked. The guards were like, I don't know. I thought they were here before. And so they, they found themselves on the, with an empty jail. And verse 24 says, Now when the commander of the temple guard and the chief priests heard this report, they were greatly puzzled concerning it. <laughs> no kidding. Wondering what this could be. But someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple courts and teaching the people. And then the commander of the temple guard went with officers and brought the apostles without the use of force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So the, the people, the crowds of non-religious people or non-Christian people were standing around watching the, what the, listening to what the disciples were preaching on. And the soldiers were afraid to arrest them because they didn't want to get killed trying to drag these people off who have been doing these miracles and healing people and were locked in jail last night and found themselves out here preaching again the next morning. Um, and the disciples, I mean, it's amazing to think. They were arrested, they were thrown in prison, and the very next day, knowing what it would cost them, walked right back into the temple and started preaching. And why? Why were they willing to give up their freedom? Why were they willing to face jail again or worse? They, they were basically guaranteed to be arrested and probably guaranteed to be treated even worse than last time. But they went right back to preaching because of what Jesus had done inside them. Because of what Jesus continued to do through them as they walked out faith in faith and preached the Gospel. God did miracles through them. Like, How can you see that and walk away from it? How can you see that and not be willing to give your whole life for it? How can you see what God does in people, I mean in your own life, and then in people who you've reached out and healed and shared the gospel with and seen their lives transformed, how, do, how does anybody walk away from that? In, in verse 27 it says, When they had brought them, 
they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in in this name. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. They're talking about Jesus, obviously. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our forefathers raised up Jesus, whom you seized and killed by hanging Him on a tree. And God exalted Him to His right hand as the leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these events. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. So the Christians said, we just call Him like we see Him, man. We saw Jesus crucified. We saw Him resurrected. And He gave us the Holy Spirit. So what can we do? I mean, we, we saw all this take place. We're witnesses of it. We're testifying. That's why we call it a testimony. When you share your faith with somebody else, you get up on the witness stand and you, you tell the world what you've seen, what God has done in your own heart, what God has done through you. You, you give your testimony about God, about who God is, about you, what you know about God. Because God wants us to know Him. He wants us to understand Him. So you're called to, be, to stand up as a witness to the rest of the world and to give your testimony. And so these guys were just giving their testimony. Where this, is, this is what we saw. How can we deny what we saw? How can we deny the Holy Spirit living inside of us? I mean, you, you can't reject that. The rest of the world might look at you and think you're just crazy, that you've got some sort of weird nut stuff going on inside of you. But when you know the Holy Spirit, when you know Jesus, when you know and understand God, and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can't walk away from that. You can't stop believing in something that you know to be true. And so that's why people are dying today. That's why people are, are being locked away in prison and not recanting. That's why people are being executed and not giving up their faith. That's why people's families, their, their families are being slaughtered and they're still sticking to Jesus. And that's going on today around the world. Just like it was going on in the early church and in Rome and in Jerusalem where people were being arrested. And they said, how can we obey man above God? You know, if, the, if government rules comport with Christianity, you know, if it just says, you know, live your life peacefully, don't steal, don't kill, don't whatever, you know, that's fine. We obey those laws. But if a law says you're not allowed to believe in Jesus, we don't obey that law. If a law says that you're not allowed to worship God, we don't obey that law. Why? Because how do you do it? How do you give up the God that you know to be real in order to obey some stupid law that doesn't make any sense because it's based on nonsense? And, and so that's what, the, that's what the disciples said. We have to, God said, Jesus said, go preach the gospel. And even though you said, don't go preach the gospel, how are we going to obey the created thing above the creator? How are we going to obey somebody who can put us in jail and maybe kill our bodies? and not obey the One who judges our souls eternally. So we're going to obey God, and we're going to do what God tells us to do. And <laughs> Not to mention, we're going to follow the Holy Spirit who is alive inside us and gives us this direction. And, and when Christians today go out and they spread the Gospel, all they're really doing is telling people about God. I mean, that's all we, we do is we go out and we tell people what God has done. We tell people what we know about God. We tell people what He's written down in His Word that we're able to read and what He's spoken through our, to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And, and we just tell people, 
this is who God is. This is what He does. This is what He's done in my life. This is what He's done in the lives around me. Let me tell you about Him. Let me give you my testimony about Him. Because He's made it possible for us to know Him. Our Creator has made it possible for us to know and understand Him in order for us to preach Him to the rest of the world. And verse 33, still in Acts 5, says, Now when they heard this, when the religious leaders heard this, they became furious and wanted to execute them. But a Pharisee whose name was Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the council and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. So there's one smart guy in the room. And, and then he said to the council, Men of Israel, pay close attention to what you're about to do to these men. For some time ago, Thetis rose up claiming to be somebody. This was some rebel in their past. He says he, he claimed to be somebody. And about 400 men joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and nothing came of it. So there are people who rise up. There are people who say they're some sort of special leader. And that's what happened. This guy rose up, and he had 400 guys follow after him. Then he was killed, and all the people dispersed, and nothing came of it. Verse 37 says, After him, Judas the Galilean arose in the days of the census and incited the people to follow him in revolt. And he too was killed, and all who followed him were scattered. And this is kind of a thing that you see through history, that people follow nut jobs, that people followed Hitler. And then he was killed, and that kind of disbanded. So it's the same sort of thing that's going on here. So in this case, I say to you, this is verse 38, stay away from these men and leave them alone, because if this plan, or if, this, if it is plan or this undertaking originates with the people, it'll come to nothing. So if these guys are just men who are made up this, this story about who this Jesus character is, once they're dead and gone, nobody's going to pay attention anymore. If this is just a human thing, if this is just a man-made creation, this, this Messiah they're talking about, eventually it's going to fizzle out and die out and it's not going to be a big deal. And, and you will not... And then verse 39, it says, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. Or you may even be found fighting against God. He convinced them. And they summoned the apostles and had them beaten. So this guy said, listen, if this is just a a man-made thing, if this is just a a movement of people, eventually they'll stop moving and they'll just go back to their normal lives because that's what people do. But if this is a God thing, you're not going to be able to stop it. Not only that, you might find yourself in opposition to God by fighting His people which is where they were, were, what they were doing. And, and so they called the apostles back in and they beat them anyway. One where they said, well, we're going to beat you just to be safe. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. So they left the council rejoicing. So the disciples have just been beaten and they left the council rejoicing after being beaten because they had been considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name of Jesus. So they were excited and and thrilled and rejoicing and praising the Lord that they got beaten for preaching the Gospel. How many of you have done that before? To go out and preach the Gospel and you get arrested and you get beaten and then you leave the, the, the prisoner, you leave your beating saying, praise the Lord, I got whipped up because I was preaching the Gospel. Because I was speaking in the name of Jesus and I got beaten for it. Praise the Lord. There are people doing that today. 
there are people around the world being beaten and persecuted, being, being burned, being, having acid thrown on them to disform their faces, being mutilated, being cut, and, and, and locked in jail and executed, having their families just killed in front of them, who walk away from it praising the Lord because they were considered worthy to serve God and to be persecuted in His name. I mean, we have no idea what that's like. We have no idea what it's like to live in that kind of environment, what these disciples were going through and what people in these nations where Christianity is illegal are going through. I mean, we live in this... It's wonderful that we can come together and worship the Lord in freedom. That we can walk out on any street corner and preach the Gospel. And, and yeah, we might get some people cursing at us or flipping us the bird or, or and once in a while somebody gets a little bit violent. But we don't have to worry about being beheaded for our faith or having our family tortured because we're preaching the Gospel. We, we don't have to think about We don't have to give that a second thought. And the disciples were out there praising the Lord that they got beaten for Jesus. Do you notice a slight nuance between the attitude of the church in Acts and the church today in our nation? I mean, it's the people these days want their church to feed them like babies on a bottle. They want to go to church and have everything handed to them, and and, and they they want the music to be just right. They they want the the coffee and the donuts to be plentiful. They want the the temperature to be perfect and and the the messages to be nice and watery so they're easy to ignore. And they want to be able to live in sin and not be reminded of the guilt. You know, if you're coming to church and you're going to preach at us, just don't talk about. You can talk about other people's sin, but don't talk about my sin. Because that bugs me, and I don't want you to bug me. That's what people want they come to church these days. And they're more than happy to do something for God as long as they don't have to leave their comfort zone. You know, if I can put a few bucks in the plate and, and think of myself as a good person, then that's good. That's what I want. But if I have to actually go out and preach the Gospel where people might be cussing at me or, or throwing things at me, no, I, I can't do that. That's, that's too dangerous. If somebody sneezes, I'll say God bless you. But that's about all I'm going to talk about God in public. That's the church today. That's the church in our culture. And it's, and it's the, you want, the people want to feel good about themselves. They want to come to church and hear a message where they can feel wonderful. And I, I, you know, Jesus loves me and I'll sing a song and, and, and it's nice to get together once a week and then I can go back to my regular life and live however I want to live and I'll go back to church and have somebody encourage me. And that's the church in our culture today. An old Canadian preacher asked once, why should anyone hear the Gospel twice before everybody has heard it at least once? And that's a good thing to think about. That's where serious consideration. What are we doing here? Are we building the kingdom? Or are we resting on the laurels of the cross? Did Jesus die so that we could have Sunday services? Or did Jesus die so that we could go out and change the world? If we aren't growing the church and sending more missionaries out into the world, and if we aren't doing that, aren't we disobeying what Jesus commanded us to do? To go and make disciples? We have missionaries come and speak and share, and, and, and some of you support them, and that's a good thing. And I know some of you are out there sharing your faith and you're you know, talking about God to your friends and your people that you meet on the street or 
passing out tracts, and, and that's really good. But is that all that we can do as a church? Is that our limit? When the Master returns and asks this church to give an account of the talents that He gave us, will we have a return of investment to report to the Lord? Or will we have to say we buried it in the ground? As a church, what are we doing? Are, are we, are we going to get a well done, good and faithful servants if all we do is come here and have Sunday meetings or, and Wednesday prayer meetings but we're not growing. We're not sending out more disciples. And we're not, we're not attracting the world to come out and find out what's happening in the church. What have you done for the kingdom this week? Or, or, or this month? Or this year? What have you done to build up the kingdom of God? Do you have a drive and a passion like those disciples who were willing to be beaten and praise the Lord because they got to preach the Gospel? If not, what's missing? Where's the disconnect? Why don't we have that passion and that drive and that zeal for God? In James chapter 1, it starts off like, well, verse 2, it says, My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. But if anyone is deficient in wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously without reprimand, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed around by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord since he is a double-minded individual, unstable in all his ways. There's an interesting phenomenon going on right now that's probably been going on since there's been wars. But soldiers that come back from Afghanistan and Iraq and places where they've lived out in the field, fighting shoulder to shoulder with their brothers in arms, they have a hard time adjusting to life back on earth. I'm not talking about the PTSD people. I mean, that's a, that's a problem. But people who just come back after living in a battle zone and they have a hard time just going to a 9-to-5 job. They have a hard time relating to the, to the people around here who have no idea what it's like to be under fire. Who have no idea what it's like to be shot at and have to worry about being blown up every single day that it's hard to kind of adjust and acclimate to a world where everything is just soft and plush and comfortable and, and entertainment when you've lived on, in, on rationed food, on, on reconstituted whatever, and under the threat of death every day. And, they ta- and you know, most of the people who go over there, they don't know what the government is doing. They don't care about what Washington is doing. All they know is that people are shooting at them and they're trying to, to, pre- to protect themselves and to protect their brothers. They're just working to, fight, to, to take care of each other because the bullets are coming in and they've got to do something about it. And so they're just fighting for the person next to them. They're not fighting for the Washington, D.C. politicians. They're fighting for their brothers and sisters in arms. And so they come back after living in that environment and they don't know how to adjust to people who... Ha- who there is no urgency in life. There's, no, there's nothing really that important. There's nothing that people's hearts are, are, are given to. There's nothing that their lives depend on. There's, it's just like they're living for nothing. 
They've got no passion, no zeal, no drive, no brotherhood. They're missing that. And so they have a hard time adjusting to that. Christians are called to have that. And I know if you haven't lived in that situation, if you haven't lived in that environment, it's hard to understand. But we are called to live for something greater. Something greater than TV and the internet and our cars and our houses and our clothes and our something greater than that. We are called to put our lives on the line to fight shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ to save the world. To go out and preach the Gospel because there's nothing more important than lives being saved from hell. There's nothing more important than, than rescuing people from the precipice of damnation by preaching the Gospel. And we ought to know that. That ought to be a part of who we are. That ought to be, we ought to see it as so important that nothing else is as important as taking the Gospel to the world. That ought to be it. And, and when you live like that, there's, there's something that you see in the rest of the world and they're just missing. You know, when they're just buried in, in entertaining themselves and just making money and just, I mean, yeah, you've got to feed your family. I understand. But there's something beyond that. There's something more important than that. And people who are living on the edge, who are willing to give their lives to, to serve God, look at the rest of the world and they're saying, what are you wasting your time for? What are you wasting your time on empty entertainment, on needless messing around? There's nothing more important than preaching the Gospel. And so we're called to give ourselves to something greater than normal life. We're called to give our all in order to save lives. In order to protect the people around us. In order to reach out and liberate those who are being who have enslaved themselves to sin. The world would have you believe that, that what you really want is a life that is, is good now. To have the, the best that you can, to, to get what you can while you can. It, you know, the world will entice you with pleasures for your flesh and they'll say there's nothing else worth living for than, than this. Than you know, what you can eat or what you can drink or what you can smoke or what you can enjoy right now that the world says we're all just animals anyway so just enjoy those animal pleasures those animal instincts that's who you are so so why not just go with the flow and live like an animal and just you know feed yourself according to your fleshly desires and it'll tell you that the bible is just a fairy tale the world will tell you that god is just a myth and that your conscience your ability to think and reason the existence of matter and life on this planet that that's all just a fluke. That it's just some random chance mistake that we're all here. Some random chance evolution that we became human beings. And so just enjoy yourself because there's nothing else to life. That's what the world says. The answer to the puzzle that I started at the beginning requires you to see through to the truth of the matter. Each of those men paid $9. They paid 10 they got a dollar back. So they each paid $9, which adds up to 27 of the $27, 25 went to the manager because that's how much the room cost, and $2 went to the bellhop. $27. It's a simple answer, but it was hard to see, wasn't it? It's a, it there's a paradox that looks at an object traveling. You know, if I was to take this pencil and drop it, it would go towards the floor because that's what gravity does. And in order to get from here to the floor, 
it would have to travel halfway first. Before it could go all the way, it would have to go halfway. And before it could go the rest of the way, it would have to go half of that distance. And then it would have to go half of that distance. And so on and so forth. So if you break it down, you know, if it, if it starts at, at four feet, before it can go all four feet, it'd have to go two feet. And then it'd have to go one foot, and then a half a foot, and then a quarter of a foot, and so on and so forth. So with those distances getting smaller and smaller that it has to travel before it can go all the way, how could it ever reach the floor? I mean, mathematically, you'd add up all those numbers and it would never get to four feet. It's a, it's a paradox. It, the, it, the pencil never reaches the floor. And that's, and that's what's happening when the world tries to deny the reality of God. When the world says there is no God, they're saying the pencil is never going to reach the floor. I mean, if you add up the numbers, we have science. And you add up the numbers and the pencil will never reach the floor because it has to travel too much distance. And that's what the world says. We have science and it says there is no God. We're all just animals. So there is no morality. And survival of the fittest is perfectly acceptable. The, the problem is they don't follow to the logical conclusions. They don't say, well, if, if God is real, if God is not real, then there are no rules. So we can kill and rape and pillage and do whatever we want. That, that there's, there's nothing wrong with the Nazis killing off all the Jews if survival of the fittest is okay. I mean, if the Nazis were the strong ones, then why not have them kill off the rest of the world and they can be the superpower? You know, if you're going by a, a godless universe, there's nothing wrong with one group of people killing off all the rest of the people. That's just survival of the fittest, isn't it? And, and, and so people come up with these moral arguments where they say, why is there so much suffering and death in the world if God is real? And the interesting thing is they don't think about the fact that they're asking a moral question. If there is no God, then there are no morals. And so if there are no morals, if you really don't believe in God, then why do you have a moral question about God? Why would you question God's morality unless you have a morality? And if you have a morality, then there must be a God. Because there is no morality without God. And so they don't think logical conclusions through this process. And and so the only way that we can survive as a society is to have a moral foundation, to have a law, to have a reason for law, because if we don't have a moral foundation to base our rules on, then whoever has the most power wins. Whoever is the fittest survives. And everybody else can just die. Everybody else can be raped and killed and pillaged and whatever because, hey, that's the survival of the fittest. And, and the enemy, Satan, has plenty of tricks up his sleeve to lead the world astray and give them arguments that sound okay on the surface, but are really just logical paradoxes that ultimately, if you follow through, it makes no sense. I mean, if I dropped this pencil and everybody had a camera and you could all take a picture, anywhere from here to here, you could take a picture of it, we'd all get different pictures, you know, the pencil would be in different spots, but in every picture, the pencil would not be moving. You know, when you take a picture, it's frozen. You freeze time for that, for that moment. And so we'd look at all the pictures and we'd see the pencil in different spots, but in each spot we'd see it, it's frozen. It's not moving. So if the pencil is not moving, how does it ever reach the floor? 
How does a non-moving pencil get from here to there? It's impossible. Those are the kind of arguments that the world gives us about God. You know, don't pay attention to the logical conclusion. You know, if I drop this, everybody knows it's going to hit the floor. Because that's what gravity does. I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of mathematical paradoxes you throw at it. It's going to hit the floor. Everybody knows that. No matter how many goofy puzzles you try to throw at it or or obfuscate the matter with, with nonsense, it's going to get there. Nobody really has any doubts that this pencil, if I dropped it, would hit the floor. It's not going to get caught up in some sort of infinite regression or freezing time or that kind of thing. Then again, what if I don't drop it? I mean, how many of you really want me to drop this pencil to see if it's really going to go down there? I know some of you want me to let go because you want to see if it's really going to happen. And the interesting thing is the enemy keeps us distracted with that kind of nonsense. And, and, you know, worldly pleasures and worries and self-doubts and selfishness. And if the the enemy can keep you caught up thinking about, is it really going to get there? Is is there really a God? Am I really saved? Is He really good enough? Is Is it true? If the enemy can keep you caught up in that nonsense, then he, can keep, he doesn't have to worry about you building the kingdom. If the enemy can keep you entertained with TV and internet and, and worrying about your house payment, your car payment, and taking care of the, the, the dog and all that, if, you, if the enemy can keep you caught up in the things of this world, whether it's sinful or not, if he can keep you distracted, then he doesn't have to worry about you going out and preaching the Gospel and saving lives and building the kingdom. And that's what the enemy does. He tries to distract you and lead away your attention and get you caught up in, in, in yourself. Keep you thinking about things that really don't matter ultimately. Where's your faith? What do you, we all have faith in something. We all believe in something. Some people believe that the world popped into existence. That there was this big bang and everything came from nothing. And then... All life came from non-life, and it was, you know, it sounds magical, but that's science, and, and some people believe in that. Everybody believes in something. Some people believe that uh, there's like billions of gods. Some people believe that God wants us to slaughter everyone else or force them at, 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 at sword point to convert. Some people believe that. Some people believe. All sorts of crazy things. So, where is your faith? For some people, it's the government. Some people, their faith is in the government to provide and protect us. In others, it's a made-up God. But, but the only way that faith does you any real good is if you place it in what is real. Your faith is only worth something if your faith is in a real thing. If you believe in something that's not real, Faith doesn't do any good. If you believe in something that can't do for you, then your faith is not any good. So the only time your faith is any good is if it's in something real. If it's in God. If, 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 if you put your real faith in the real God, then you are filled with His real Spirit. And real Christians understand that because we've been there. We know what it's like to be transformed on the, on the inside out. And, and so we know what it's like to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know what miracles are like because we've been a part of it. We've seen it happen. And, and so, those people are out in the world doing real good. And they're, and they're working to help build a real kingdom and save 
real people and, and, and real eternal lives. And you know that when you live that way, you know real peace. I mean, in spite of what the world is doing, in spite of the persecution that you might suffer, you know real peace and real fulfillment and real joy. Your joy isn't dependent on what's on TV. Your joy isn't dependent on how your day is going. Your joy is dependent on the God that you serve. Regardless of circumstances, you know what joy is about and peace and fulfillment because you know the real God. And regardless of this temporary home and the distractions that it tries to get us caught up in, we know what's real and so we point our faces towards what's real and we don't turn to anything else. So where's your faith? I challenge you, each and every one of you, to get on your knees with God and figure out the answer to that real life puzzle. Do you know God? Do you understand God? If not, you need to open your Bible and you need to be praying that God will reveal Himself to you because He wants to. He wants you to know Him and understand Him. It says so in the Bible. And if you want to know what real life is all about, get to know and understand the real God. And He'll tell you why He made you and what He wants of you and what He wants to do for you. And find out why those first century church members, those disciples, were willing to be beaten and arrested and go right back out and preach again knowing that they'll be beaten and arrested again and keep on doing, knowing that they'll probably be killed eventually because they, they know God. They know the truth and they're not willing to let anything distract them from it. Find out what those people were so passionate about preaching the Gospel in the face of so much persecution. And then I challenge you to go out and do that yourself. That's your, that's your homework for the week.